The outline says the mission of Jesus. You should have that in front of you, hopefully. And we are looking at Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to verse 15. Now, Stephen Covey, in his book, The Seven Habits of the Highly Successful People, says everyone should write down their mission statement. He says you should take a pen, write down what your mission statement in life, because it's very important. The experts tell us that mission statements are like a laser beam, they say. They focus our minds and our energy on our intentions in life, and they make it clear for us to strategize and be creative to achieve our objectives. Now, of course, I don't know as you sit here this morning whether you have a mission statement for your life. The truth of the matter is that in some sense, whether you've written one down or not, in some sense, all of us do have a personal mission statement. We have something we live by, isn't it? Maybe your mission statement here this morning is like the mission statement of IKEA. IKEA says our vision is to create a better everyday life for the many people. I'll leave you to work out whether they're achieving that or not. Or perhaps your mission statement is like Richard Branson's mission statement. His mission statement in life is to have fun in my journey through life and learn from my mistakes. Now, we are currently in the book of Mark, as you know. And so far in Mark, we are on this exciting journey as Jesus is introduced in the beginning. But so far in Mark, Mark has taught us a lot of things about Jesus. But we have not actually heard directly from Jesus. How does Jesus understand his mission in this world? Uh, if you like, if we interviewed the Lord Jesus as he rides into Galilee and we asked him, what have you come here to do? What would he say? What is your mission, personal mission statement? What would Jesus say? Well, this morning we are in Mark 1, verse 14 to verse 15. And these, these verses contain the first, this is very important, they contain the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And some have called these words really Jesus' press release or press statement as he begins the work. I prefer the term mission statement because I think what is contained in verse 14 to 15 are the words the Lord really summarizes what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do in this world and what he has come to do in your life. Maybe you have not yet reach that point of total surrender to Jesus. You know something of Jesus. But what you want to know is, why do I really need to put Jesus first above everything else? I know there must be something in life, more to life. But is Jesus really the answer? It's an important question to ask. Well, these words in Mark 1, verse 14 to 15, answer that for you. They are here to answer the question you are asking. Or maybe you are already trusting in Jesus. And what you want to know is this. How do I live for Jesus today? I hear many Christians teach this and people teach that. What is the message of Jesus? And what is my 
therefore how I'm to lead to live my life towards him. Well, as I said, these words again contain the mission statement of Jesus. And if you are in Christ, this is your mission statement as well. I think if Jesus walked in here uh, this morning and he was handing out t-shirts uh, to his followers and he wanted on that t-shirt to contain a slogan of what he's about, I think there's a good chance Mark 1 verse 14 to 15 will be written on it. These verses contain the very essence, the mission, the slogan of what Jesus has come to do. Therefore, they are very important for all of us here. Believers, non-believers. Seeking, searching, already settled in Christ. Wherever we are, we need to know these words. They're important for me as a preacher. I need to know what I'm preaching is consistent with the message of Christ. They're important for us as a church. What is our church about? This is the mission statement of Jesus. And the mission statement of Jesus must be our mission statement as a church. So there are key truths here I just want to flag up. They are in your outline. That together these key truths form the mission statement of Jesus. The first truth we see here is that Jesus has come for people who don't not want him. Jesus has come for people who want nothing to do with God or Jesus. Look at verse 14. Mark starts this new section. And not with Jesus, it's very important, but he starts this verse with some bad news about a man called John the Baptist, who we've already met. Look at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, and we must now pause there. Because we see here that John the Baptist, the great prophet who we have met before, has been sent by God, we know that, is now being incarcerated in what we might say the Belmash of Galilee. He's in prison. And Mark later tells us that John is in prison. Why is John in prison? He's in prison because Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, has refused to turn away from sin. He's committed a terrible sin, and John has been telling him, repent and turn away from this sin. And Herod Antipas is not happy, and his wife, well, this mistress is God, is not very happy, and she's got Herod to put John in prison. Let's read Mark. Just flick over to Mark chapter 6, verse 17 to 18. That's why you find out why John is in prison. Chapter 6, verse 17 to 18 says this. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. Why? For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod has arrested John because John is telling him to repent and turn away from this terrible sin he's committed. John has been calling him to go back to God. This is what human beings are like, isn't it? God has sent John to call people back to God. And what do they do? They decide to shut down the voice of God. And we see this rejection of God in many parts of the world around us today. There are many parts of the world today where followers of Jesus are being routinely arrested and being put to death. Just like John. 
I read Open Doors recently, two weeks ago, recently released a statement on India. They said that in India there's been a 20% rise in atrocities on Christians. Christians being put to death in India. We see this rejection of God not just there in the persecuted world. We see it right here on our doorstep. You are free in this country to believe in Jesus, but just don't talk about it at work or too publicly. In this country, we are seeing many street preachers being arrested and the devil keeping them busy before the courts because the devil is keen to shut down the voice of God. We are seeing teachers losing their jobs because they are standing up for Christ. We are seeing nurses losing their jobs in this country. Right on our doorstep. And of course the media works very hard to censor the voice of God. You rarely see Christian experts really go on television, on the BBC, to give a biblical point of view. It used to be the case, but the voice of God is being shut down slowly in this country. And in certain established churches, they, they, they were doing that, shutting down. In many churches, particularly some of the established churches, we've seen, of course, pastors who stand for the Bible quickly turned off from their pulpits. And if you take a moment to pause and think carefully, you see this rejection of God in your life as well. Think over the last week. Can you say God has been first in your thoughts? Can you say God has been first in every word you've spoken? Can you say God has been in every action you have done? Of course not. Because at one sense we are no different from Herod and Herodias. All of us, our default setting as human beings is not pro-God. We are anti-God. That's the human default. Psalm 14, verse 2 to 3, says this is a psalm we should know all by heart. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And the psalmist concludes they have all turned aside. Together they, have, together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Not even one. When God looks at this world, that is his assessment. No one does good here. Not even one. You see, the problem is not that we are necessarily not interested in God at all. No, the problem is, the problem is that we are okay with God. It's just we want him as an add-on to our lives. Our problem isn't, is really, is not so much the idea of God. It's the idea that God claims first place. Our problem is with God being first. We saw this in Judges. And we said that the Bible calls us sinners for this very reason. In our natural selves, we don't want him. In our natural selves, we are walking blasphemy before God. God would be perfectly right to walk away from us and leave us to face eternal punishment on our own devices. But we read in verse 14 something amazing. Let's read on. We read that God is reaching out to us in Jesus. Read that verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, 
Jesus, Jesus came into Galilee. Doing what? Proclaiming the gospel or the good news of God. I thought about this moment here. And it occurred to me, what Jesus is doing here is very risky. John the Baptist is incarcerated, pointing to Jesus. And now Jesus shows up. And he's showing up bearing good news for people who do not want him. He's risking arrest to reach out to the human race. Risking rejection, even death on the cross you bear to come to us. Don't miss that the word there, good news, is the word gospel there literally is good news. Jesus is coming. He's entering the scene here in Galilee. He's arrived after so much rejection of the very man he has appointed as his peer agent. Maybe you think God is some distant cosmic taskmaster who is only interested in ordering you to do things, but he doesn't like you very much. Some of us have that idea of God. Jesus is saying, put away that idea. (laughs) Put away that idea of Jesus, or God in general. Put away any idea that Jesus is like some friends or colleagues that you have, who do not like you at work or in your life. But they hang around you really just to get something from you. Jesus says, put away that idea. Put away any idea that Jesus has come to set, to, 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 to set difficult rules that you need to pass in order to feel accepted and loved by him. Put away any idea that Jesus has come for you because it is easy. Jesus has come to lay down his very life for you on the cross. To die for you. Jesus is saying here, look, put away any idea that I've come because you asked for me. I am the one who is chasing you to be with me. I am the one seeking you out. I am the one risking rejection, risking death to reach out to you. And you know what? This is the first thing all of us need to understand about Jesus about his mission in this world. Jesus has come for people who do not want him. This is what Jesus has come for. Incidentally, if you're a believer, that is also your mission, if you share that. To reach out to people who do not want him. That must be the mission of this church, to reach out to people who do not want Jesus. Because, you see, this sets, up, this sets Jesus apart from religion. Religion is man seeking God. Jesus is God seeking sinners who have rejected him. There is nothing like Jesus. And this is why it's good news. This is why this passage is good news. Here, this is the second and final truth we learn about the mission of Jesus. is this. Jesus is God coming to reign. So the first thing we don't need to know about his mission statement is that Jesus has come for people who do not want him. That's the first point. The second thing we see here is that Jesus is God coming to reign as king. 
Let's go back to verse 15. We see there that Jesus has come to bring good news. The question is, what is this good news? What verse 15 tells us? Let's read back from verse 14. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying what? What is this good news? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, at this point, we must pause and take note of something very important. Mark is written in New Testament Greek. And in New Testament Greek, there are two words for time. Okay? The first word is chronos, which means the normal passage of time. The second word is kairos, which talks of the season or the appointed time. So what word is Jesus using? Any guesses? Where the word is using is the second word for time. It is kairos. Jesus is saying the Kairos moment is now. The time is now. Now is the appointed time, moment from God. What is this moment? What is this moment? Read verse 15. The moment is this. The time, the Kairos, is fulfilled. What is the Kairos? And the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is saying what is happening right now here in Galilee is that God has come to reign. The kingdom of God is breaking in. God is now reigning as king. Now, if you read your Bibles, and which I hope you are doing fervently in your spare time, you would have developed a set of asking the scriptures very difficult questions. And as you come to this passage, the first question you must ask yourself, hang on a minute, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God has come. God has come to reign. But is God not already reigning? Doesn't the scriptures tell us that God is king already? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes, God is king as the creator and sustainer of all things. Everything exists by his providence. So in some sense, God reigns over all things. But no, he's not reigning as king, Jesus is saying. Because God is not fully, in a sense, in charge of all things that happen in our very daily lives. Human beings have rebelled against God. We are in a state of rebellion since sin entered the world. He's king over everything, but we have rejected his kingship here. Something we kept learning when we were in Judges. This means that even though God is king, all human beings are born, in one sense, outside the kingdom of God. In all its fullness and glory. The way I see it is like this. Each one of us here is born into this world, carrying a spiritual passport. Not with the kingdom of heaven written on it, but with the domain of darkness written on it. All human beings are born with that passport. All human beings come into this world bearing guns against God, raising a fist against Him. We are born into the domain of darkness. And usually when I make this point, I like to remind parents, this is why it's very important that to see your little children that are being born, they are being born in a different kingdom from where you are at. And you must pray for them that God works to change them to visit them, 
That's why we as a church should not treat Sunday school just like some add-on. We must own it because we realize from the very moment the child is born, we are in a spiritual warfare because those children are entering this world bearing arms against God. And this is why it's important for moms, dads, to, to be there for the children, instructing them in the things of God because of this very important point. But look at the good news here. The good news is that God has a plan. Yes, people are outside this kingdom. But God has always had a plan. Decreed from eternity past. And the plan was for God to bring the whole realm of existence under the kingdom of God. In all its fullness and glory. And as I've said, this plan of God was forged in eternity. But it begins to take shape in the early pages of scripture. From the moment man rebels against God in the Garden of Eden, there's a promise in Genesis 3 that God will raise up a deliverer, an offspring out of Eve, who will crush the serpent. He will establish the kingdom of God. And as we read on scripture, we see God preserving Noah after the flood comes because he's still working on this plan. And we begin to understand this plan of God, bringing in his kingdom, everything under his kingdom, when he appoints Abraham. Abraham is chosen by God to be the vehicle through which God will ultimately come to rule this world. And as we read on through the pages of the Bible, we see that Abraham's descendants, Israel, the, the, the story takes over a millennium. You know, God loves epics. He's not into short stories. So it, it, the story takes over a thousand years as God, through twists and turns, works in the nation of Israel to prepare them to receive his kingdom here on earth. And throughout the panorama of Bible history, as the kingdom of God is beginning to take shape, advancing, God is sending them prophets, He's sending them kings. And as we've seen in Judges, all of these people are pointing forward to God coming to reign. So in Isaiah 9, we have that prophecy of God coming Himself to reign. Jesus is saying here that all of that panorama is being fulfilled now. That moment of all history finds its prophetic convergence in Jesus of Nazareth. Let's read verse 15 again. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying what? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God, listen to this phrase, is at hand. The word at hand there literally is very important. It won't come across when you read your Bibles. But the word and there literally means within reach. It is special, not chronological, so to speak. It's not referring to time. It is referring to proximity. It is at hand. It's within reach. You can almost touch God, he's saying. Jesus is saying, God himself has come. You can almost reach out to him and touch him. Why? Because Jesus is God coming to reign. And this is the good news of Jesus. Foretold in Isaiah 52 verse 7. Listen to what Isaiah 52 verse 7 says. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, what does God say to Zion? Your God reigns. And in Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 2, we have a picture of what this reign of God is going to look like in Isaiah 61, verse 2, 1 to 2. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, 
Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. What I'm saying here is that as we go through Mark, this is very important to understand this verse, because as we go through Mark, what we see in Mark now from this moment on is the unfolding of this kingdom of God. Who Jesus now will be doing things that will be showing us this is what God's kingdom is like. Because in Christ you now have this prophetic convergence, as I'm saying. All the prophecies of history are now fulfilled here. The kingdom of God has come. But we need to remember one thing when we say that. And this is very important. The kingdom of God is always a now and a not yet. In King Jesus, as I said, we see this prophetic convergence. Jesus is God as our king. That is the now. Okay? It is now. This is happening. We live in the time of the kingdom of God. But there is also an element of the not yet. Because you see, when Jesus comes, he ascends into heaven. And, he appear, and we are told in the scriptures that he will appear for the second time. That is the not yet. There is, we are in this church age, the kingdom of God, but there's also what? The age to come. Do you get that? In the now, Jesus is our king, okay? And we are promised many blessings as we enter the kingdom of God. But also in the now, we are promised suffering. You need to get that. In this age, in this kingdom of God we are in, there are blessings and suffering. But in the not yet that is coming when Jesus appears, suffering will be done away with. Now, for some of you, this sounds like you know this already, of course, and you're wondering, why is the pastor belaboring this point? It seems so technical. Far from it. Here is the key to how you live your life. Because you see, many errors you hear in many churches and in other places come from this simple misunderstanding. The frustrations you have in your life come from this simple misunderstanding of this aspect of the kingdom. Many people are proclaiming, listen, they are proclaiming to you things that are, from, are for the age to come in the now. You get frustrated with God that is not taking away your suffering because you think you are living in the not yet. In this life, in this age, your promised suffering, your promise to take up your cross and to follow him. So let's go back to the main point here. The main point is that the mission statement of Jesus is that Jesus is God reigning as our king. The kingdom has come. Even as Jesus asked us to pray, your kingdom come. And the arrival of King Jesus demands a response from all of us. Look at verse 15 again. How should we respond to Jesus? Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying you can only enter the kingdom of God if you repent and trust in the good news he has come to proclaim. If you repent and trust in him as God reigning among us. And let's not miss here this word repent, metanoia. 
the word used here, the repentance Jesus is demanding here is not regret. It's not I did something bad and it's quite terrible. I'm so sorry about that. I wish I hadn't done it. That's not what Jesus is preaching here. It's not even crying either that, you know, Lord, I'm just in a terrible situation. But there's no change in heart, as children often like to do. That's not what Jesus is preaching here. The repentance Jesus is demanding from you is not even, by the way, should I say Jesus is demanding this? For, the, for clarity here, this is a demand from the king. It's not an option. You either repent or you don't. He says repent. And the repentance Jesus demands here is not merely knowing that he's demanding repentance. Or merely knowing that you are sinners before God. The devil knows that already. Judas knew that. And his response was to kill himself. The repentance Jesus demands here is metanoia. It's a turning from one direction and walking in the other direction. The 180 degree turn. You have not repented unless you have moved from one direction and going in the opposite direction. To repent, friend, means to come before Jesus and place yourself at his mercy. To ask him to not only forgive your sins, but to change your life. And from that point on, when you've come to Jesus like that, he enables you to think differently, behave differently, live differently, laugh differently, and dare I say, feel differently. Because it's a transformation of the whole person. You have new affections for Christ. I think we have to pause there. I think we have to ask ourselves. I've heard a lot about the Christian life. I've heard how it's been preached. I'm hearing it here from Jesus' own words. And we have to ask ourselves, does this accord with my experience? Have I come to Jesus and repented of my sin, going from one direction, going to the other, and fully trusting in him? It's not really down to what I say or what you read from this church or on that website. It is what Jesus is saying here in his own holy word, his very words. And that's why I'm very thankful pastorally, I think, that we are going through Mark. Because at least you can hear directly from Jesus' own voice. I don't want to say the horse's mouth because the Lord of glory. But you are hearing from Jesus himself. And he's asking you this morning, is there this sort of repentance in your life? Is there a new hatred for sin? Is there a deeper desire to live for God? This is him saying it, friends. I know many of you here, well, some of you don't say many, but some of you don't like me saying this. I am just a messenger. This is his word. This is what he's saying. And so you have to ask yourself these things. If the answer is no, you haven't truly repented according to this. There's no hatred of sin in your life. There's no change in direction. No affections for Christ. Then I'll be a lie if I tell you you are standing in the kingdom of God. You are not. And you need to approach God quietly this morning. Ask God to give you a new repentant heart that truly trusts in Jesus. 
Because you see, Jesus has come on a mission for you to bring you into the kingdom of God. So don't stay outside. You don't stay outside, friends. Don't stay there in the dominion of darkness. Because if you stay there, you suffer the consequence. There's an implicit threat in Jesus' word. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Well, what if I don't? Well, he's saying the king has come. If you are rejecting the king's command, that's serious business. You remain outside there, but remember the juggernaut is the kingdom of God coming. And Revelation chapter 12, I think, or 11 tells us that one day the kingdom of this world will be what? The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is unstoppable. Whether you like it or not, the kingdom of God is going to advance. And if you are in the way, it will crush you. And the question here is, will you get in the boat, as it were? Jesus has come on a mission for you. That's what he's saying. I've come you to bring you into the kingdom of God. Don't stay outside and suffer the consequences. And as I said, I know some of you find this hard to accept. But you need to hear it this morning. Because it's not how much mileage you've clocked in this church. It's not how much you have sat under preaching. It is not how much, whether you're born in a Christian family. It's none of that. It is these words. In his own words, our Lord's word. The time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Some of you have entered the kingdom of God. You are trusting in Jesus. You have a hatred for sin. You are longing to live for him. You immediately recognize when Jesus said, the kingdom of God says, repent. Yeah, I've done that. I'm moving in one direction going forward. I still stumble, but I'm believing in the gospel. There's a new hatred of sin in my life. You can immediately recognize these things. And so what you're asking me now is, what does this then mean for me? Because I tick the boxes. What does it mean for me? Well, let this be a river of comfort that washes you. Every day. Because you see here, no matter how long we walk with Jesus, there are always moments when we doubt whether we truly belong to him. Sometimes we stumble in, sin, in some sin and, and after a struggle, we, we repent from that sin, but doubts start creeping in. I have the same doubts sometimes. And I'm asking, do I really know Christ? Because I, I read the scripture and I think, Lord, what's going on here? Do I really know you? And we have both doubts, don't we? And they are healthy doubts because they draw us to dig deeper in his words. Sometimes we find ourselves in a difficult trial and the devil starts whispering. If you're a believer, you know, why is God letting this happen? Beloved, listen directly to the words of Jesus. Because Jesus here is saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying here, friends, if you have truly repented and believe in the good news, you are in the kingdom. And guess what? If you're in, you're in. <laughs> if God has produced a new change of direction and you, you know you have new affection for Jesus, there's no reason to doubt you belong to him. You're in. These words are here to comfort you. Because if you, have, you can see something of the evidence of new affections for Christ and you have turned from sin, you are in. Jesus here has led so clearly the qualification for the kingdom. 
And if you have this qualification of repentance and belief, why then do you doubt? Instead, let these truth friends deepen your love for our Lord Jesus. And if you remember anything from the message today, remember this. Jesus has moved heaven and earth to seek you out. You are once outside his kingdom like the rest of the world. You are happily hostile to God like Herod and Herodias. And then Jesus came, the king of one way love. He came to pursue you. He convinced you of your sin. He made you repent, genuinely repent. And he warmed your heart to live in his mercy. Your relationship with God, you see, has, been, has always been a one-way love from God. As I read these words in the past week I was sharing on Thursday, I literally whipped. I was whipping. Because I realized how my Jesus has worked to pursue me. He has reached out to me. He has come for me. Despite all my rejection of him, he has sought me out. And I have contributed nothing. It is all grace. You know, sometimes we forget that. Sometimes I forget that I'm only in Jesus because Jesus perseveres with me. Oh, beloved, think of all the times you rejected him. Think of the time you never wanted anything to do with God. And yet he sought you out. Think of even now how often you go back to the spiritual vomit of sin and you wallow in it. And yet Jesus is always whispering to you in his words. You are mine. We are stuck together. Beloved, there is no God like the God of Jeshua. The Lord Jesus Christ, the God who rides across the heavens to your rescue. He loves and he's still loving you. And so let this truth not only comfort you, let it make you cry out to God to help you love him more and more every day. Surely, surely, such a wonderful king deserves nothing less. What a privilege to have Jesus as our Lord and King. To him alone be glory forever and ever. Amen.